So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3. We will be looking at this chapter in its entirety and including the first verse of chapter 4. And this is a difficult passage, so uh, as we come to it, we'll pray that the Lord would help us with it and help us to understand what's going on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come to one of the more difficult portions of scripture, and it's not because you're difficult or because your word is somehow difficult, but it is because we lack understanding, because we do not see our sin as deserving the punishment that it gets, because we are difficult. And so, Father, I pray that you open up our hearts and our minds to see your word in full clarity, to see our sin in humility, and to seek repentance for it, and that you teach us how you would have us be as your people, as your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember as a young kid, a movie called The Day After. I probably shouldn't have watched this movie as a young kid as I say that. The movie detailed a full-scale nuclear attack and kind of what life would look like after that and how life would go forward. It's, again, not one of those movies where everything ends at the end and everything's okay. In fact, it's a very unsettling movie. I would not recommend it at all, really. Um, one of the things that really stuck out to me about that movie, though, is the way that society breaks down so quickly after an event like that, or, or probably would break down so quickly. Everyone quickly went from worrying about kind of the mundane things of life, you know, like jobs and football games and weddings and these things that we kind of think is normal, to worrying about food and water and shelter. People shift from being cordial with one another to fighting life and death battle all the time with perfect strangers. The whole nation was turned upside down. And you only get a small portion of this, but you would think that it would take at least one lifetime for things to get back to normal. And using that word carefully because it probably never would be the same ever again. So what does this have to do with Isaiah chapter 3? Well, a lot, actually. In our text today, Isaiah is speaking to a nation that will eventually suffer this kind of judgment. Not nuclear judgment, but still the same at the hands of the Father. He will send the Babylonians to destroy Judah and Jerusalem and send their leaders into exile and kill many of them, and it just it's going to be a really bad thing. This won't happen for another hundred years after Isaiah dies. So it's still quite a bit in the future, but it will happen. Isaiah is simply warning them about their impending doom. This is what is going to occur because of your sin. He describes what society is going to be like, how it's going to completely fall apart in some ways, how they'll be searching for leaders, for anyone to lead them, but no one will be there. They'll be searching for provisions, but there won't be anything. 
will be a horrible time for the people of God, and it will be because they did not listen to God. Like the movie, the day after, the events of the Babylonian exile could have been avoided. People had simply listened to the word of God, followed his ways. However, man believes his way is right, and of course we know what the Proverbs says about the way of man, it quickly ends in death. As we look at this passage, we'll know that there isn't a lot of hope in it, and it makes it difficult. In so many passages that we look at, even, there's a lot of bad, and then you have this little shred of hope, and it kind of makes it feel good at the end. Today, there is this slight glimmer of hope that we'll pull out of the passage, and, and, and it is hope. The, hope. the hope is ultimately manifested in the coming Savior, our Lord Jesus. He's the lasting remnant of God's people. But before that, a lot of bad has to come through it. And so we'll look at this passage in three main ideas. First, the breakdown of society, the judgment of the elders, and then the judgment of the women. And so with that, let's look at Isaiah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants, shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another, every one of his fellow, or every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother and his house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. For they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord said, because of the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, Therefore the Lord will strike with the scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. 
In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets and headbands and crescents and pendants, the bracelets and scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors and linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. For men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember last week we dealt with quite a bit of judgment as well. With the idea of the day of the Lord. That the day the Lord would exact his judgment upon Judah. That was contrasted with the first part of chapter 2, which talked about the days that the nations of the earth would be blessed by Israel and they would flock to the mountain of God, if you remember that. So today, this idea of judgment continues to be worked out. There could be no doubt from us reading the passage. We shouldn't forget the promise of the first part of chapter 2, however, the promise that in the latter days, the mountain of God will be a place for people to gather, all the people to gather. These places are all gone now, these places that Israel once held dear and that Israel kind of called their sacred places. But they still, they pointed to a present reality. Christ sits on the throne of the Father and He has a people for Himself that are to be blessing, that are to be a blessing for the whole earth. If we lose our focus on that reality, if we lose our focus on that truth, which is very easy to do as we read passages like this, then we will easily get down. We also need to take these passages to heart, though. We don't need to ignore them because in our own sinfulness, we are still at war with our flesh and their sin issues in Israel are our sin issues as well. Nothing has really changed in all these years. And so we need to understand that. And a church that somehow thinks that they are better than everyone else had a name. In Jesus' time, they were called the Pharisees. And remember the words that Jesus said to them. And so we need to make sure that we take these words to heart as we read them. And so bring me to the first point, the breakdown of society. Back to verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water. What's the idea here? The idea is that we have this picture of a siege that is taking place upon the city of Jerusalem, that support and supply are being taken away. The food and the water are all gone. This is what happens to Jerusalem when Babylon comes. You can read about it. In 2 Kings 25, a very uh, matter-of-fact kind of account of that uh, attack that happens. The, it outlines that the Chaldean army, which is another, basically another word for the Babylonian army, 
came and laid siege around Jerusalem and they starved them out and broke down the walls and stormed in. The king of Jerusalem at the time tried to run and he was chased down. He had to watch as his sons were killed and then his own eyes were cut out. It's a horrible end. And then he was taken into exile. They took away all their leaders. And in verses 2 and 3, you kind of get a rundown of who all these leaders were. A wide variety of people, everything from craftsmen to palm readers, basically, were taken away from the people. They, uh, they kind of just left behind people to grow food in Jerusalem, and they set a vassal over them, and that was about it. The, uh, what's the effect of taking away all the leaders? Verse 4, the boys will rule over them. Infants shall rule over them. Just the idea that there will be no experience at all to keep Jerusalem running. It will just kind of be this vassal state with the leadership being sent away to what amounts to re-education camp. You know, um, mind washing, trying to get them to believe in the Babylonian way, which you can see is some of that in books like the book of Daniel, for instance. Farmers making more and more food so that Babylon can continue their quest for glory. All of Israel's distinctiveness is going to be washed away into the collective known as Babylon. And so where does this breakdown of society begin? Verse 5, you get this idea very vividly. People oppressing one another, everyone kind of turning against each other, neighbor against neighbor, youth against elder, despised against honorable, everyone for themselves, no one for anybody but themselves. They will look for leaders. I love this in verse 6. For a man will take a hold of his brother in his house of his father and says, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. It's kind of sad when someone just having a piece of clothing qualifies them to be a leader. Kind of sad. Continues on, verse 11, they shall not be able to hide their sin for what his hands have done shall be dealt out to him. It's kind of a sad thing. There is a little bit of hope here. Verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with him, that they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. If they're righteous among them, then that will be well with them. However, we know full well that there aren't any righteous among them. So this is leaves no one to receive this kind of thing. It's important for us to translate this sort of thing into our current day, a day where good leaders are gone and we're stuck with a bunch of wicked ones. If you can find a good one, let me know. They don't exist. If you look at some of the people that are over our state and our national government and even here locally, it's almost if someone just went and put a cloak on them and called them a leader. They had no other qualities other than that. And it's not that we disrespect our authority, because there's just none left. Authority, order, these kinds of things have just gone away. Now granted, we have a whole lot more than a lot of places, but you can see this. Society continues to set set new and new lows for standards of morality. And all the while, the church stands by and many times has put a stamp on it. The way we will make an impact in this world, brothers and sisters, is not by accepting their sin, but by calling it out. 
And that isn't to do, isn't to say that we do so from a high and lofty place. We don't stand on this high pedestal of righteousness and call out the sin of others. We do so from a place of being a sinner as well. By calling out their sin, it gives us an opportunity to tell them about the only one who is righteous. The only one that verse 10 is even about. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the midst of all of this chaos, it will be well with Him. And our Lord Jesus took upon this chaos and He gave us His righteousness. So that when the Father says, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. That doesn't apply to those who believe in Jesus. Instead, it applies to Jesus. It applied to him. He is judged for what our hands have done. That is the message we have. That your sins can be erased. Because of what he has done. And that is in the midst of an upside down world that makes no sense. When everything is crazy, nothing seems right or real anymore. Jesus is the one who can cut through the garbage and keep right the heart of the matter. He is the one who ultimately delivers his people from exile and destruction. And that is what we have for people. We have Christ to offer them. That's it. So next, it brings us to the judgment of the elders. Verses 13 through 15. The Lord has taken His place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor declares the Lord of hosts. And so you kind of have this scene change going from the desolation that kind of followed this Babylonian uh, siege to a courtroom where where the Lord again stands to contend with His people. And the first people that He contends with are the the elders of Judah. Their crime, taking from the poor to fill their own storehouses. The ones that should be caring for the poor is using them for their own advantage. They have devoured the vineyard, is what the text says. Probably an idea of them actually going out and robbing the crops, which is probably something that happened. However, this idea of the vineyard goes a whole lot deeper than that. This is a symbol throughout Scripture. You remember our Lord Jesus talked about it several times in the, in the Gospels. The people of God are oftentimes compared to his vineyard. He, the Father, is the vine dresser. The elders have gone, and they have destroyed the people of God. This isn't the only place that we find this in Scripture. Scripture has several places where we deal with, or we see the Lord dealing with his leaders that he has set over the people. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm going to read the first 10 verses here to show you 
what the Lord is talking about when it comes to the way that His people, His shepherds, His elders, have treated the people of God. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Shall not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth and none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they may not be food for them. So the Lord cares for his sheep. So much so that he takes the shepherds away from them. You can read there, as we were reading through Ezekiel 34, you can see the picture, very much so, of the people of God being scattered for lack of people to lead them. The people of God are the sheep of God. The elders appointed as their shepherds, as under-shepherds really, under the good shepherd, the Lord himself. And what kind of shepherd takes advantage of his flock? What kind of shepherd starves his flock rather than feed them? What kind of shepherd uses his flock for his own gain or abuses or exploits the vulnerable sheep among the flock? Just search for the words, pastor fired, and you'll see them. They look like ordinary guys with wives and families that have made very terrible mistakes. And this in no way diminishes what they did, and I'm not attempting to do that, whatever story you read. But I only mention this to say that your elders need prayer. Not only the elders of this church, but of every church. The leaders of this city and the county need your prayers. The state of Kentucky, the leaders of the United States, They need your prayers. The leaders need prayer. The temptation is great to exploit those under you. And so prayer is is necessary. It is the weapon that we have against temptation. Not only to protect the current elders, but I say this as well, but that God would continue to raise up new and faithful elders for his church. As the church needs more and more men who will step into this role and lead the flock. 
It was just a presbytery where the average age of the elders there was pretty old. That isn't to say that that's a bad thing. It's good that we those guys are there and they're leading their flocks, but we need we need people to step up because soon those men will be with the Lord and there'll be none to lead His people. There's a reason that the office of elder is guarded so carefully because those who decide to enter into it face double scrutiny. They face a different kind of judgment. Not only from the world, as you see, but also from the Lord God Himself. The elders and teachers among the people are judged more strictly, and they should be, absolutely. And for that reason, they, we, need your prayers. It's something for that for us, we need to pray not only again for our elders, for us here in Redeemer, we pray for our own elders, but also that the Lord would raise up more elders even from among our number here. Something that I want us to pray for. Because as we go forward, and as ministry needs begin to broaden, even as we talked about and prayed for during our prayer time today, we know that as we move into this building, things are going to happen with our church. People are going to come. They're going to want to see. We need people to shepherd the flock. We need more good men to fill that row. Pray toward that end. As Paul said to Timothy, it is a noble task to aspire to the office of elder, but it is a difficult one. So I encourage your prayers. Pray that the Lord will preserve His under-shepherds and continue to raise up new ones. The third point, the judgment of the women. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. These are pretty rough words, particularly as you picture the idea of a siege and all that that entails. I mainly want to focus on the sentence that the Lord lays before them. And you get, as you read through those verses, like 18 through 23, all those different accessories that are mentioned that are going to be taken away. He takes away their external beauty and exchanges it for very plain and even dirty things. Perfume for rottenness, a belt for a rope, well-set hair for baldness, a rich robe for a skirt of sackcloth, branding instead of beauty. The elders were being judged because they robbed and cheated the poor folks. The women were being judged by the vanity of that newfound wealth. Because the daughters of Zion were haughty or proud. There's another word there. They walk with outstretched necks. Not a way that we really think of people walking. It's kind of this um, hoity-toity kind of thing, I guess. Glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go. It's an interesting way to think about things. Tinkling with their feet. I mean, you kind of get the picture here that's happening, right? This, you get a picture of a woman that is completely done up, metal on hands, wrists, ankles, fingers, everything, making noise as she walks in order to draw attention. Utter vanity, which will lead to utter humility. And it gets worse because of the war. Who's dying? Well, the husbands are dying. You see that in 25 and 26, the husbands are dying or they're being 
taken away and there are very few men left. And the women are left to scrape by however they could in a culture that largely wouldn't allow them to work unless they chose some other profession that was had less dignity. So they were willing to scoop up whatever man was whatever man was around. Verse one of chapter four. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, and saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Anyone would do. They were looking for anyone. And why is this judgment on them? Because only one deserves glory. Because only one deserves that sort of glory. And when he has to share it, well, he doesn't share it. The Lord doesn't share glory with anyone. Throughout the scriptures, when people tried to take glory for themselves and take it away from the Lord, they paid for it every time, or they would pay for it, or they will pay for it. Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 14. So we see a picture of this, one of my favorite pictures of this in Scripture. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. And I wish I had more time to go into the story of David's son named Absalom. But here you get a picture of what kind of man Absalom is. Chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. Now in all Israel, there was no one, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair off his, of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it. It must be nice to be able to grow that much hair. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, which is, I guess, pretty heavy, by the king's weight. So what did he do? He like every year he was so enamored with himself that he would cut his hair and weigh it. And the word weight there is the Hebrew word kabod, which is also the same word for glory. You could almost say that Absalom gloried in his hair. It was his pride and joy. He loved his hair. Turn with me to chapter 18. We'll read another story about his hair. Second Samuel 18, starting at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. When the mule that was under him went on. If you know the rest of the story, Absalom got his head caught in the branches because his hair was so luxurious. And he was hanging there, and that is where Joab and some other men of David went and slaughtered him. They killed him. Because he was, uh, he had driven the king out, and again, it's a long story, but they killed him. So look then at verse 18. This gives you a picture again of this Absalom. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar 
that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. His glory was his downfall. There's a monument to a man who got his head hung in some branches and was speared to death. Not a good way to be remembered as David's son, who was remembered for almost the opposite of those things. And just to be clear, men are no less at fault here, really, as I just showed you a story of this man who was completely vain. But I think it's important to, for us to see that this, the problem here isn't beauty. We're not saying that there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look nice. There's nothing wrong with beauty. But when it becomes at the expense of others, it's particularly bad. But much more applicable, I think, for us today, when it becomes a thing that we seek as an end of itself. This is when trouble comes, because beauty, as we learn throughout life, is fleeting. It's the glory of God that will last forever. What are things that we are placing our weight in, our glory in, besides God? These things from the world, they are passing away. It's the glory of God that will last forever. For the women of Israel, one day they were in the street clinking along with all of their jewelry, and the next day they watched as the enemy broke open their gates and slaughtered or took their men from them. Then all the bracelets in the world weren't worth the price of a loaf of bread in that day. I think this is a tough passage for us because we see our own world in it. If we're honest, we should see ourselves as well. Thankfully, we have a good shepherd, the one who forsook his own glory. Consider that for a moment. The Lord of glory, who sat at the right hand of the Father, came down so that he could be born in a stable with animals placed in their feeding trough. He forsook his own glory so that we could be glorified. He set aside his place at the right hand of the Father and became like us to save us. Because we were his enemies. We were those who were going to be punished. We were those who should be punished. We were those in this passage. But yet we became saved because our Savior became like those in this passage. That we might be glorified. So in conclusion, we don't have a good shepherd, Jesus. We don't have one who doesn't understand the difficulties of this life. On the contrary, he lived it. He died. He, he totally understands. He didn't have to do that either. He did it for us that we might escape the wrath that was due us so that we could gain the glory that was due to him. And so let us be a people who are on guard against all types of sin because all sin puts us before the, before the Lord, gives us glory instead of Him. And let us pray for those who, who are leaders. Let us pray for those who lead so that they may be able to lead well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come again to pray, we see ourselves in this passage, or at least we should. And more than that, we should see you, the one who took upon himself the pains, the agony that was due us 
and instead gave us your glory, gave us your righteousness, so that all could be well with us. We thank you for this, and we pray this in your name. Amen.